0: Coming up on Pass the Secret Sauce.
1: Axial is a, we're a software platform that's, you know, delivered over the internet to buyers and sellers of small and medium-sized businesses. So the simplest way to think about Axial is, you can think of us as you know, Match.com for people that are buying and selling small and mid-sized businesses. We create software that you can access through a private login. As a buyer, you can say, hey, here are the kinds of businesses that I'm looking to buy. Here's the kind of investor I am. Here's the corporation that I work for. I'm buying these businesses for my own account. And as a seller, you can privately say, I'm exploring selling my business, or you can have an m and advisor who's representing you, a broker who's representing you, sort of privately upload information to Axial. And then you as the seller can decide when do you want to start interacting with the buyers on the platform. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not a public dating site where everybody can see everybody buyers sort of register who they are and the sellers have a a private sort of gated entry into the platform. And then when the sellers have decided that they want to begin, you know, sort of engaging in dialogue and discussing the sale of their business, um, they can begin to sort of make the first move through the platform. And there's a bunch of matchmaking software and a whole bunch of other stuff that's designed to create a much more demystified process for the purchase and sale of small businesses than, than what we thought existed prior to Axial.
0: Welcome to the show, I'm Matt Shields. On Past the Secret Sauce, we unscramble the life stories, skills and secrets from the most wicked smart minds and interesting people to uncover their experience and recipes for success that will help you get an edge on your own life. My goal is to help you rein in on the chaos that life throws at us by learning from other high achievers. If you're new to the show, we have episodes with founders, CEOs, investors, and leaders. So if you like to learn and are motivated to improve your life, then kick back and listen to our guests pass their secret sauce. Today on Pass the Secret Sauce, we have Peter Learman, who is the founder and CEO of Axial Networks. Axial Networks helps connect buyers and sellers of businesses together. So they essentially have, it's all one platform, but they have a buyer side and a seller side. So the uh, sellers obviously go onto the platform and uh, enter in all kinds of information about their business. Uh, And then on the buyer side of things, they pre-qualify to make sure that each of the buyers are accredited and viable options for companies to be able to sell their companies. So really really interesting conversation. So if you, you know if you're interested in selling your company or perhaps if you're looking to acquire a company, this is an episode that you're not going to want to miss. Peter also shared his insights into the progress that was made not only in his own industry but in other industries as well during the pandemic and you know some of the things that we were all forced to do and he has a really interesting perspective on why we shouldn't necessarily go back to business as usual so i'm not going to spoil the episode i, I, I listen to the episode listen to peter's perspective on why we need to embrace everything that we learned over the course of the last year, year and a half, and how we shouldn't go back to business as normal. So I hope with that, you enjoy today's episode of Pass the Secret Sauce with Peter Learman.
1: Well, it was, I'd say, uh, the memories there are pretty vivid and my my dad had a really interesting career in a variety of industries and categories he spent some okay. time working in government and in politics and then he spent uh, time as an entrepreneur building a business uh, that he actually took public and oh, wow. also spent time working in financial services in new york and so I, the three primary categories were you know sort of entrepreneurship Politics for sure, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know both domestic issues as well as foreign policy, and uh, and then definitely like investing in the stock market for sure. Mm-hmm. When my dad was uh, in financial services, I was very curious about that, and he taught me how to read the sort of stock tables and the prices every day before oh, computers cool. and the internet made all of that really obsolete. But I used to check the newspaper for, for stock prices every morning. And I had my, you know, a couple of companies that I was following. So yeah. sort of finance, government, uh, politics, and and entrepreneurship, all, all mixed in.
0: I love that. I love that. And, and would you guys talk about these types of things at the dinner table, you know, what the, with the, you know, what the, the best stock is to, to get into right now? And, you know, was I was that really interested
1: of... in sort of understanding, you know, we talked a little bit about stocks. I think what I was actually very interested in, and I remember at was like, what determined whether the stock market went up or down that day. That was like a very mysterious thing to me. And, and I really wanted to understand sort of what determined that. And everybody would say that, you know, the stock market was went up by X amount of points, but I was like, well, what do the points mean? Are those different from dollars? Are those Mm the same as dollars? So I just had like a lot of, (laughs) a lot of confusion around like, what is, how does this all work? And, uh, So I was more interested in, and I remember asking a lot of questions about how it all worked and spent less time sort of talking about like, is this company a good stock or not? Mm -hmm. Mm The one company that I followed really closely was a company called Topps Baseball Cards. So as a kid, I was really into baseball cards. Yep,
0: so was I, yeah.
1: And Topps Baseball Cards was a publicly traded company based in New York City and For some reason, just I can't remember how, but somehow my dad happened to know one of the top CEOs at one point. It may have been the founder CEO or professional CEO. His name was Arthur Shorin. And so every once in a while, I would sort of write a letter to Arthur Shorin and he would send me more baseball cards. (laughs) And so that was the stock that I, that was the first stock I bought uh, as a kid. And I used to check the price of tops every day. I love that. I love that. Is is tops still around? it is still around i don't know if it's an independently owned business anymore or whether it has been acquired you know it's interesting like the baseball card industry has kind of had a bit of a resurgence it of has like, you yeah. know, one of these asset classes one of these sort of new alternative asset classes but and i think tops was behind pokemon as well so i, oh, I was it I, yeah yeah interesting so I think I, I think that they you know they are around in some form or fashion. I doubt it's as an independent you know publicly traded organization of their own, but I just don't even know.
0: Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, no, it's it's cool when you flash back to those those olden days, you know, trading baseball cards and all that. I remember I had a Jerry Rice rookie card and I was all proud of it. It was one one of those thick plastic cases and yeah, uh, with the screws and everything. And then some kid stole it from me, so I was devastated. But uh, you know, it was. Good times back then, you know. Yeah, no, the
1: the baseball cards were a big thing for me. And then, and obviously I'm dating myself here a little bit. You are too, I guess. But (laughs) then there was this other category that tops invented called garbage pail kits.
0: oh yeah i still have all those yeah, yeah absolutely i love those <laughs> i was
1: really into garbage pail yep kids. yep without and a doubt i think part of the reason i was into them was because mr Shoren used to send me like complete editions of them oh wow and so i would like you know, set them up in binders and i would create the complete editions yep and you know because i had this unfair you know advantage where he would occasionally send me like a complete edition you know, a lot of my friends at school were really jealous of like how good my garbage pill kit collection was. Yeah. I think the other reason was because every little, you know, you know, the, the, the stick of gum, right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was like a big, I, I, I would, um, I love just sitting there opening up the, the little packets and putting way too much uh, gum in my yep,
0: mouth. Yep. And it, it was always, it would always be like crunchy at first. Then it finally all, yeah, you know, very
1: stale and, yep. sort of, <laughs> you know, but I didn't care. <laughs>
0: Oh, that's great that's great yeah. so so you know you you had an amazing influence and impact you know at a very very young age into entrepreneurialism and that at what point did you you know say hey i'm going to make a go at this i'm going to you know i'm going to start something of my own and i mean it could even be you know, really, really young when you decided you're going to open up a lemonade stand? Did you did you have any of those types of things that you did growing
1: up? I didn't have the sort of quintessential lemonade stand sort of instincts. I didn't like have a paperboy route that I did. You know, I was definitely interested in business and more so interested in business early on in my life than I was in my academics. Like I, mm-hmm. I definitely kind of, I was not an academic powerhouse. Like I didn't have really lousy grades, but I just the, the lack of pragmatism in certain aspects of academic work and academic mm-hmm. life definitely left me more focused on business and my curiosity around business. And it also had me more engaged in athletics and team athletics, mm-hmm. um, like mm-hmm. all the way through high school. I finally kind of became more intellectually engaged in academics in like my junior and senior year in college. Okay, And by then I'd sort of sacrificed the opportunity to really post a great GPA because I, yeah. you know, just but I, I did finally begin to like appreciate academics and academic work and the pursuit of doing really well there for, you know, as like a means unto its end, you know, unto its own. Mm-hmm. But yeah, as a kid, I just wasn't really that, you know, that into it. My, my entrepreneurial, I think, sort of career really got cultivated After college, you know, I I am the fifth of five kids and one of my older brothers had started a business and I was, I think his first intern and one of the first employees at the company and that company was based in New York. And I went to go and work for that company as an intern. And then instead of going and doing like a more traditional career, you know, start that a lot of my friends were, I ended up going and working for this company full time and the company... Within like five to six years of the company's inception, you know, that business after a really tough one to two first years sort of figuring out what it was going to be when it grew up, that company really kind of took off like a rocket in terms of employee count and revenue and profits and demand for its products and services. And so my real first like exposure to entrepreneurship and how gratifying it can be and how action packed and sort of alive, it can make you feel was, uh, it was my first career, I just lucked into being able to get an opportunity there. My brother had started the company, and I tried to sort of earn my own keep and not just be my younger, you know, my brother's younger brother who they had Mm -hmm. to give a job offer to, I, I really tried to be a great employee. And um, saw the company go from a few employees to 500 employees, in like five or six years, I mean, it really happened fast. Yeah. And it was, largely all funded out of positive operating profits. So it wasn't like one of these stories where we went out and raised hundreds of millions of venture yeah. capital. And that's why we had 500 employees. We had 500 employees and the company had the, the revenues and the profits to be able to afford every single wow. one. Of them. Wow. And so that was a really unbelievable first professional experience yeah. and showed me just the power of entrepreneurship and the power of executing on a really good idea And got me really to appreciate just what entrepreneurship can do, both in terms of creating great careers for people, creating new jobs, transforming industries, creating net worth for yourself and for a lot of others, creating a lot of value for customers. The the power of entrepreneurship as a platform for progress, professional progress and world progress and all these things that really came into focus, actually in my twenties, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I I wasn't starting businesses like, you know, in my teens or anything Mm -hmm. like that. It Mm -hmm. was a more normal age. What what industry was that in? It was an information services. It is an information services business. So it's, you know, it's got over 1200 employees now, 25 offices around the world. It's privately held company still, but it's an information services business, which transformed the paradigm by which investors in public companies access information and experts on uh on the businesses that they're looking to invest in so if you're a professional investor in the world of stocks and bonds there are a number of ways that you can think about you know making your investment decisions but one way is to speak to other people who are experts on those companies experts Mm -hmm. on the products the technologies the regulatory considerations and this company gerson lehrman group it goes by glg today made it really easy for investors to connect with experts uh, and pay them on uh, an hourly consulting basis to Mm -hmm. deliver expertise and insights on it. And the old way of doing things was, You'd pick up the phone and you'd call some sell-side equity research analyst at a Wall Street investment bank, and they'd say, well, we think you should buy this stock for this, 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 and you know this reason, that reason, and, and this reason. And a bunch of those Wall Street investment banks had a whole bunch of both disclosed and undisclosed conflicts of interest as to why they said you should buy this stock yeah, or sell this sure. stock. They had a bunch of ancillary businesses tied to, to delivering that. And so what GLG said is, let's move Wall Street analysts and Wall Street experts out of the way let's let investors connect directly with professional experts on these topics, lawyers, former, you know, employees who used to work at those companies, people who work as, you know, competitors, you know, real operators in and around the, you know, the industry in which the company operates Mm -hmm. and people who have no wall street affiliation, no wall street bias, they don't work for Goldman Sachs, et cetera. Uh, Let's build a paradigm in which professional investors can speak with these industry experts and then come to their own conclusions as to whether or not this company is goodbye or you know a bad buy and it kind of opened up this whole uh, new market of research and information services that you know today is is really big they have a lot of competitors now and yeah but yeah it was it was an, a little germ of a business back in 1999
0: yeah that's amazing that's amazing that's cool that you're on that you know on that ride right from the very beginning I mean like you said quite an experience to be able to come out of college and be able to jump right into that so it was
1: yeah I mean the business was growing so fast we were opening up offices in London and Shanghai and I had no idea what I was doing but neither did anybody else and so they (laughs) gave me a whole bunch of these opportunities and and uh, I tried to make good on them
0: yeah I love it I love it so when did you uh, start your first company was it is the one that you're in today or did you have something else that you started before that
1: no, I I so I I spent about six years at GLG and then I left and went to graduate school and I started Axial right after graduate school, and so that was really in 2009 that we incorporated Axial and that's the same business that I'm running today. When I was in graduate school, I had the opportunity to work part time as an investor, uh, investing in small and medium sized private companies. Um, okay. it was a private equity investment firm focused on buying small and mid-sized testing and measurement businesses. So it's a really interesting niche private equity firm. They buy or invest in instrument businesses like, you know, highly technical engineered uh, instrument businesses that are, and I worked for them and, and it was as part of that experience working for them that I sort of began to develop a perspective and, and a set of insights that led to ultimately led to the founding of Axial.
0: Yeah, that's very cool, and and so so that's where you got your so your mergers and acquisitions feet wet, you know, kind of understanding that that side of the business. Explain a little bit about what Axial does.
1: Sure. So I mean, Axial is a we're a software platform that's you know delivered over the internet to buyers and sellers of small and medium sized businesses. So the simplest way to think about Axial is. You can think of us as you know, Match.com for people that are buying and selling small and mid-sized businesses. We create software that you can access through a private login. As a buyer, you can say, hey, here are the kinds of businesses that I'm looking to buy. Here's the kind of investor I am. Here's the corporation that I work for. I'm buying these businesses for my own account. And as a seller, you can privately say, I'm exploring selling my business, or you can have an m a advisor who's representing you, a broker who's representing you, sort of privately upload information to Axial. And then you as the seller can decide when do you want to start interacting with the buyers on the platform. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not a public dating site where everybody can see everybody buyers sort of registered who they are and the sellers have a, a private sort of gated entry into the platform. And then when the sellers have decided that they want to begin, you know, sort of engaging in dialogue and discussing the sale of their business, um, they can begin to sort of make the first move through the platform. And there's a bunch of matchmaking software and a whole bunch of other stuff that's designed to Create a much more demystified process for the purchase and sale of small businesses than, than what we thought existed prior to uh, prior to Axial.
0: That's very cool. So do, does it get into helping, I guess, helping validate the valuation of the companies as well for the the buyers? And I guess also if a seller comes in wondering how much they their their uh, their company is worth, you know, does it help with that side of things?
1: we provide a set of basic valuation tools and guidelines that we think are anchored to like, you know, first principles investing sort of processes, right? There's a couple of ways to think about, you know, what the value of any business is one way to think about it. And this is copy, you know, sort of like, you know, it's, it's accurate in many ways. And then it's also sort of the academic definition, which is, the, you know, the value of any business is, you know, equal to the present value of the business's future profits, right? Mm-hmm, take mm-hmm. all the profits that the business is going to make over the course of the future. And you were to discount all of those profits back to the present day, right? Because money today is worth more than money 10 years from now or 20 years mm-hmm. from now. Virtus Technology is a custom business software solution provider. Are you tired of manual entry into an old system that creates more work than it helps? Does your company suffer from constant pain and frustration around its business processes? Do you spend a lot of time and money trying to hunt information down or figure out what is happening in your business? Virtus Technology can help solve all of this. We evaluate your current processes and then create custom software or mobile apps to automate and streamline your business process, eliminating a lot of those pains and frustrations. Unlike other systems, our goal is to digitize your current processes and systems so that your staff's learning curve is very small. If you're ready to take your business operations to the next level, give Virtus Technology a call today. That would, you could arrive at evaluation for that business. The problem with that approach is nobody knows what the future holds, right? Nobody knows whether the business is going to grow 10% or 9% or 50%. Nobody knows whether a competitor is going to enter. You can't predict all of these, you know, there's just millions of things out in the future that could impact how the business performs. A CEO could come in, the founder could get hurt. And so that's a very academic way of thinking about valuing a business, even though it's intellectually sound. Mm So what ends up typically happening in the purchase and sale of businesses is they tend to get more valued based upon two things: what have other businesses that are somewhat similar to, mm-hmm. to to your business what have they been bought and sold for, right? And then the ultimate definer of a business's valuation is what 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 is the market of buyers at any given point in time willing to pay for that business, yeah. right? It's a marketplace, yeah. right? Yep. And so. That uh, those are sort of the sort of three valuation constructs and we sort of try and introduce those constructs to business owners so that they have some way of understanding the way a buyer is generally going to be thinking about arriving at a valuation for the business. We don't go into, we don't deliver valuation services, but we do introduce those concepts and we've built some online tools that sellers can play with to sort of, you know, try and arrive at a range of value. Mm-hmm. But ultimately we're sort of, you know, we're we're a market oriented organization. So we believe that the market should really ultimately be the dictator of, of what a business is worth. Mm-hmm. And so what we try to do for sellers is we try to create, a liquid and well organized marketplace where the sellers can engage with a bunch of willing ready and able buyers and have those buyers ultimately register you know their their valuation of the business in the form yeah. of offers to buy the business we feel like that's the best way to really arrive at the value of a business is create a marketplace where that business can carefully and confidentially engage with credible buyers and do so yeah. all at the same time. Yeah. And whatever the process is that, you know, whatever the prices are and the values are that come out of that process. Well, that is the, that is roughly the, the value, value of that business at that yeah. very point in time.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Are, are you focusing in on any specific industries or uh, verticals or anything like that?
1: We do. I mean, we, sh- we we have grown the number of industry verticals that we serve and support. So when we started the business, we were exclusively focused on American manufacturing and industrial companies. And some of that had to do with my prior experience at the private equity firm that I'd worked at because they had really been focused on these manufactured products. And so that was sort of a place where I had a certain amount of personal critical mass of relationships and you know, as you're starting these online marketplaces, you know, there's very hard sort of chicken and egg yeah. dynamics uh, in the early days. So what we did in the early days was pick a specific industry, which was sort of industrial manufacturing uh, businesses that were worth between somewhere between five and $25 million in value. Okay. So sort of this is the market that we're going to focus on. Today, there are really sort of four major industry categories where where, where Axial is sort of creating these marketplaces, these sort of confidential private marketplaces between buyers and sellers. One remains industrial and manufacturing businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second are you know technology, IT services and software businesses. The third are healthcare and healthcare services businesses. And then the fourth are consumer, you know, products that touch the consumer, products and services that touch the consumer. Those can be branded products, those can be private label products. Mm-hmm. They can also be like the retail side of consumers. So, you know, retail stores, retail businesses, chains, franchises, uh, and, and other sort of businesses that serve the consumer through a retail footprint or through an e-commerce footprint. Yeah. So those are the four categories. Now, what that leaves out is speculative biotech. hmm. Real estate. There are some pretty mature marketplaces on the internet for real estate. So we've sort of stayed away from the real estate category, we kind of think it's its own, own ball of wax and needs to be done differently in order to be done well, and we don't really have the expertise to do it well. And then the third area is sort of, you know, financial services businesses. So the purchase and sale of banks, wealth managers, investment advisors, that's just an area of very, very low activity and low interest on Axial. So as opposed to doing it poorly, we just don't do it at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And and if you were, I guess if you were a buyer looking in any of those industries, obviously you'd be, you know, you'd be a, a candidate for uh, that side of uh, the equation. Are there any, I guess, any qualifiers that a buyer would have to qualify for or through in order to be able to be considered a you know an accredited investor or a legitimate investor, so that you know the, the sellers know that everybody on the platform is.
1: Yeah. So, and, yeah. So, you know, th- there's a set of rules. Uh, I mean, there's real, there's, there's laws, you know, governing the way in which natural persons or organizations interact with investment opportunities in America, largely created by the Securities Act of 1933. Yep. But there are some other laws that, you know, that apply as well that are of the same age or, or more recent. What we do at Axial is ensure that every investor or buyer on the Axial platform is duly accredited, whether they are accredited as an independent individual investor or whether the organization for which they work is qualified. And there's a variety of sort of criteria that are called for and required by the SEC that a organization must attest to a level of achievement in order to be considered either accredited investors or to be what are called qualified buyers, qualified purchasers, qualified institutional buyers. And it can be a certain amount of net worth or a certain amount of assets under management. It just depends on whether it's a corporation or an investment firm or a natural person, et cetera. But we go through an attestation and qualification process for every single individual or entity on the buy side. And it's only after they've gone through that process that they can enter the platform and be considered for uh, for opportunities by business owners or investment bankers who are selling businesses or raising capital for businesses. Yeah,
0: that's great. That's great.
1: So, so you had some interesting
0: comments. We were we were chatting before we hit the record button here. So, so you're from New York City, and you had some interesting comments on the the progress that we made you know, going through the pandemic, you know, situation where, where you know, obviously people were forced to work remotely. Talk a little bit about your, your thoughts, you know, along that line of, you know, how we, how we should be moving forward now that we're coming out of, you know, the lockdowns and all of the regulations and, and all of that.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I learned a few things. I mean, I think the first thing that a lot of us learned is that, you know, there's, you know, just the robustness of the modern internet and a lot of the applications that have been built on top of the internet, you know, are are just reshaping the way we can communicate and share information with colleagues and customers and, and partners and friends. And, you know, whether it's Zoom or Slack or, you know, the, you know, the Amazon Alexa on your your kitchen counter that allows you to drop in on your in-laws. I mean, there's just because we were forced into this sequestered formation, I think we began to take advantage of these pre-existing internet-based communication tools and applications in ways that we historically hadn't hadn't taken advantage of them at all. I mean, it's not like Zoom was started during the pandemic. It had been around for years and years and years, but nobody was using it to run a business remotely in the way that, There were very few people, very few entrepreneurs, very few businesses that were running as a completely remote business prior to the pandemic. And everybody had to find a way to to do that, both to communicate with friends and family, as well as to operate businesses during the pandemic. And so it just was this unbelievable forcing function for how to make full use of the internet and how to make really full use of a digitally enabled age. Mm -hmm. And obviously that transitions and translates in all these different specific, it translates generally just in terms of how does, you know, how does the world connect with itself and communicate with itself, but it also has all of these specific implications within different industries. So for example, in the industry in which Axial operates, right, which is, you know, we are a platform that facilitates the purchase and sale of small businesses. So we have professional buyers of businesses and we have owners and operators of businesses And they historically did a tremendous amount of interacting in person, Mm -hmm. lots of handshakes, lots of rounds on the golf course, lots of networking at, you know, good conferences and bad conferences and, you know, just a lot of sort of happenstance and ad hoc networking interactions. And all of that got shut down, right? Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to sell your business, if you were thinking about raising capital, you couldn't go to any sort of in-person watering hole in order to do that. Right? You were immediately moving to the Internet and to the Internet as a layer through which to interact with the world of investors and acquirers. And that really, really was a big adjustment for my my customer market. Right. I mean, they're just very networking and relationship oriented. And the idea of like meeting people on Zoom and exploring mm-hmm. MA opportunities over Zoom. It was it was starting to happen prior to Covid, but it was. Just, Happening slowly. Yeah, yeah. And MA basically ground to a halt during the most acute periods of COVID in America. And it didn't grind to a halt because buyers didn't want to do deals or because sellers didn't want to do deals. Yes, there were periods of low visibility, and people said, hold on, let's wait and see. You know, and the market was recalibrating. But one of the primary reasons why MA was down 90% in the first and second quarters of last year was because buyers had still not gotten comfortable fully diligencing a business mm-hmm. via Zoom. Yeah. They, in some cases, their documents, their, their investor documents required them to go on site and meet with the businesses in person. So they were either legally obliged to, or just their normal course of due diligence was not adopted at all to the digital age. And so a whole bunch of M&A basically went to zero, not because people didn't want to do deals or because people weren't excited about businesses, but because nobody was getting on airplanes. And so nobody was shaking hands, nobody was meeting in person. And so you couldn't get all the way across the finish line on a transaction. Mm -hmm. So huge, huge change to an industry like MA as a result of the pandemic. I guess here we are today, you know, it's June of 2021. And, you know, we've made a ton of progress on these things. So now a whole bunch of companies are trying to figure out what do we do next and what's our return to work policy. And I, I guess what I'm hoping is that the great majority of people and companies don't, don't aspire to return to the way things used to be, that they... But they instead sort of move forward into the future and embrace all the things that we learned about, you know, how to work well, uh, how to take advantage of digital tools and technologies. And that means we probably shouldn't abandon working in person with one another. There's lots of value and lots of upside there. But there's just so much flexibility, so much convenience. There's so much loss of commuter you know, just all this commuter time or all of the, you know, if you're a big, you know, environmental and and climate change guy, I mean, the ability for people to not have to get on airplanes in order to have meetings, the ability for people to not get in their cars and drive from the suburbs into the big city in order to do their jobs. I mean, there's a whole host of reasons, both in terms of employee satisfaction, you know, reducing our carbon footprint as a nation, getting more stuff done just more efficiently. There's a whole bunch of reasons to sort of take, you know, digital interaction, digital communication and embrace it as one of the modalities of the post COVID work age, as opposed to saying, all right, it's Labor Day. Everybody, you need to be back in the office. You need to all be vaccinated. And, you know, we're going back to working Monday to Friday, nine to five or eight to six or whatever. the case. It just, to me, that would seem like, We really missed an opportunity to take all the things that we learned during the lockdown period and we just kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. So for Axial, we're definitely not going to be doing that. We're going to have periods during the year where people are working in the office. We're going to have periods during the year where, you know, we get together as an organization for a week at a time for company-wide offsites. But, you know, we feel like the genie is out of the bottle and it doesn't make any sense to put it back in it.
0: Yeah, no, I, I love that that train of thought. You know, from an industry standpoint, you you mentioned the first and first and second quarters were down by ninety percent, you know, last year in, in 2020 because of some of those those hurdles that were in place prior to the yeah. the, the pandemic. Did you see in the second or the third and fourth quarters were people starting to get past that where again, you know, maybe the diligence didn't include having to go you know, on site, you know, did, did, were we starting to get past some of that where that might not have necessarily been a requirement then at that yes, point? Yes,
1: we were. So I'll tell you, you know, it's not a binary switch. It's not like every, you know, professional MA transaction can get done over Zoom now. So we haven't like made a full transition from an offline mandated world to a fully digital embraced world. But we're much further along in that progression. And what I would say is that there were a couple of really, really big things that happened. First of all, a lot of on-site diligence that could be done off-site mm-hmm. moved off-site. So a bunch of desktop underwriting, a bunch of digital review of financial statements, a bunch of you know anything that really could be virtualized mm-hmm right? Really did get virtualized. So underwriters who provide debt capital in order to, you know, facilitate m and transactions, analysts who are, you know, evaluating and analyzing financial statements, there was just a big push to move a bunch of that information up into the cloud, make it accessible, you know, through just desktop analysis, desktop underwriting, as opposed to like going through a punch list on site. I think the evaluation of management teams began to happen over Zoom. I don't think that like it's a done deal and you know, people are gonna make multi-hundred million dollar, you know, M&A decisions all the time just through Zoom meetings, but they're gonna make some of them that way. And yeah. if they have any pre-existing relationships with somebody, they're definitely gonna capitalize on those. So, like if you and I met before COVID, right? And we're talking about a business transaction and no business transaction ends up getting done, right? But we have this pre-existing relationship and we have some amount of pre-existing trust that's a function of us having a little bit of in-person time together. Yeah. And then you pick up the phone and say, hey, Peter, it's time to sell my business. And I really want to talk about the opportunity with you before I go out to you know a broader sure. audience of buyers. Yeah. That process is totally different now, right? Because there's been a little bit of pre-existing relationship rapport that's been built in person. Yeah. Now that, that process can be really fast and can be very, very digital. Yeah. You may still get on an airplane kind of at the very end of the transaction, but you may not, you know, you may not. So, you know, it's not a completely digital uh, sort of due diligence world, but a lot of it got moved into sort of a digital first footprint. And I would say in certain parts of the capital markets, it definitely is totally digital first. Like there, I work in the world of MA where you're buying whole companies and you're really changing the control of the company because the whole company is being sold or a majority of the company is being sold in the world of venture capital, where you're buying 10, 20, 30% of a business, mm-hmm. that world is like completely digital now. Like they are issuing term sheets yeah. after zoom meetings. Yeah. So the world of minority capital raises is completely ready to 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 go without meeting in person. Uh, yeah. But M- MA is a little bit more cautious because you're you're literally acquiring full control and responsibility for the business. And so the diligence standard is is even higher.
0: Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. No, th- that is that is such I, I love that. I love that train of thought and, and again taking a positive out of you know, what, what we've gone through. So, you know, kudos to you for, for, you know, thinking that way. And we have a couple of companies as well, obviously. And that's the kind of the way that we've always run things. We've always sort of been digital. Obviously last year was much more so, and I'd never really thought of, you know, let's look at this as all of the different things that we've, that we've gained from it and, and let's you know keep doing that. So I, I love that train of thought.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, it just, it was like, it, it's been such a horrible period, in so many ways with isolation and sickness and public health uncertainty. And so I'm not trying to make light of all of the terrible things, but, you know, we did really learn how to mm-hmm. work around some of those things and for for entrepreneurs and corporations and business leaders to just put their head in the sand on, on those things and pretend that we never figured out how to do it. I mean, Wall Street operated from Wall Street operated remotely. I mean, traders yeah. were in their apartments trading hundreds of millions of dollars of treasuries and fixed income. And, you know, and, and so I think we really need to think about that. You know, every company needs to think about that and think about, OK, what does that really mean? And and because I think in, in many ways, you know, again, I, I'm not necessarily a huge bleeding heart environmentalist, but I mean, if you just thought if you just said, OK, every single company mm-hmm. is going to work four days a week from the office yeah in, instead of five days a week from the office i bet you if you did that the amount of carbon footprint that yeah you know you know that that a nation would produce i mean it would be one of the easiest ways for a nation to reduce its carbon footprint if yeah you without just, a doubt you know if you just took 20 percent of the work week and said nobody has to commute no, you know, trains can run at half, you know, status, airplane capacity can come down. Yeah. And if, you know, if, if, if every organization, you know, held one of their in-person conferences and made it a digital conference, you know, again, you'd get the same sort of immense compounding effects in terms of carbon footprint. So, yeah, I think it'd be a shame to not sort of appreciate the, these discoveries and, and have them become part of the, the post COVID you know, post-COVID, world, yeah. yeah, post-COVID yeah. way of doing business. It's
0: not not to mention, you know, I mean, obviously the carbon footprint, but also, I mean, just from the, you know, the money savings, whether that be personal, you know, not having to drive your car, no wear and tear, no gas, exactly. you know, business, obviously, you know, whatever budgets you had, you know, to, to run your office or, you know, have all your staff travel, you know, across the country for that extra day. I mean, that could be put into other things which could produce even more. So, I mean, it is completely just a, you know, compounding, effect that, you know, can just keep on growing and growing. Yeah. Love the I thought. Total,
1: I totally, I, I totally agree. Yeah. I totally agree.
0: Love it. Love it. Peter, if, if people wanted to learn more about you or Axial, what would be the best way to, uh, to get in touch?
1: Well, if you're interested in Axial, the, the website is axial.com, axia You can go there and learn how to use Axial to buy businesses, to find businesses to buy. You can go there and get a whole bunch of free content. If you're thinking about preparing to sell a business so yeah, lots of information on axial.com. If you're interested in striking up a conversation with me, uh, the easiest way to reach me is probably on LinkedIn. I'm pretty responsive there. And, and, uh, you know, my contact information is on LinkedIn. If you want to just send me a direct email via LinkedIn, that's totally fine too.
0: Beautiful, beautiful, Peter. This has been fantastic. I certainly appreciate the time and the insights and, uh, you know, we're we're always buying businesses and buying different things, so perhaps we'll uh, we'll do some business here together at some point in the future.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on, and that sounds great.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening, and remember, pass the secret
1: sauce.